Welcome to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, presented by Team Snap and hosted by veteran soccer broadcaster Dean Linky. Uniting coaches at every level of the game around the love of the game. We are United Soccer Coaches. Now, here's our host, Dean Linky. Hello, everybody. I am Dean Linky, wishing each and every one of you a happy new year as we are charging toward the 2020 United Soccer Coaches Convention in Baltimore. That also means there will be a spot open on the United Soccer Coaches Board of Directors. This year, we have two fine gentlemen seeking election. They are Rusty Oglesby and Sean Danhauser, or Sean Danhauser and Rusty Oglesby, to be fair. The electronic voting process will begin on Monday, January 6, 2020, and will remain open through noon Eastern on Friday, January 17, 2020. Members can vote online or in person at the convention. Election results will be announced in the afternoon at the annual membership meeting held at the convention on January 17th in Baltimore. The election will be administered electronically by a third-party vendor with oversight by United Soccer Coaches Nominations and Elections Committee to ensure fairness and transparency. With a flip of a coin, Sean Danhauser will go first, followed by Rusty Oglesby. Then we'll do a year in review with longtime executive editor of Soccer America, Mike Waitola. He will also be at the United Soccer Coaches Convention and also iconic goalkeeper for the USA, the great Tony Miola. That's our show. We begin with Sean Danhauser and Rusty Oglesby. Two gentlemen running for one spot as part of the 2020 United Soccer Coaches Board of Directors. And it starts after this message from our presenting sponsor, Team Snap. Does managing your club or league feel like a second job? If so, you might need some help. With Team Snap, you can get it. Their customers save up to 15 hours each week on tasks such as communication, registration, scheduling, and more. Plus, everything you need is online, which means no more trips to the bank, no more lost checks, and no more colossal spreadsheets. Bring your club or league into the 21st century with TeamSnap. Go to TeamSnap.com to find out more. Hello, my name is Sean Danhauser, and I'm running for the United Soccer Coaches Board of Directors because... As a player, I feel the need to give back to the game in the best way that I know how, by serving others. As a coach, I've benefited from the United Soccer Coaches educational programs, and I want to help further that tradition of excellence in the future. As a parent, I want to make the game accessible to everyone and help provide more opportunities to coach and play to a diverse population. As an advocate, I'm involved with the Disability Allies and the LGBT and Allies Advocacy Groups of the United Soccer Coaches. Most of my coaching experience has been at the grassroots level. I have served as a coach at the rec, competitive, and high school levels. But I found my true calling by working with players with special needs. I'm a person that likes to get things done. I have started two local soccer clubs in my community and do a lot of work to promote adaptive soccer across the Midwest. Outside of soccer, I work in a senior management role for a Fortune 500 company, so I understand how the role I'm seeking works and the necessary tools needed to be successful in this role. I'm a little different from the traditional candidate for this role. I see this as an asset and a voice for others. I hope you will think so, too. Sean, what made you decide to run for the board position? Well, Dean, I'm passionate about growing our game, like many of our members, and improving the experience for the coaches and players. 
I see becoming a board member as an amazing platform to help influence the direction and the resources of the United Soccer Coaches towards the development of the game and the coaches involved. Sean, what is the biggest strength you would bring to the board? I believe my biggest strength is vision and follow-through. I see how things can get accomplished, and I'm pretty good at making my ideas become reality. I have a lot of ideas, and I recognize the necessity of hard work, teaming up with like-minded allies, and collaborating with them for the greater good. Nothing good comes easy or without the help of others. I'm good at building consensus and asking for help. Sean, if you could do one thing, just one thing, immediately for the association, what would it be? If I could do one thing, it would be increasing member engagement. We have a very dynamic and diverse membership that I think could be utilized more often than just once a year at convention. I would like to see the leadership of the advocacy councils and the member groups work with more people and get more accomplished throughout the year. More touches with more people getting more done. Giving more ownership and accountability to the members. I think many of them want to be more involved in the process. Finally, Sean, what part of membership in United Soccer Coaches do you relate to the most? Well, I became a member initially to access the coaching education courses like many of the members. I remain a member due to the value I place on the benefits that I receive. Convention is something I look forward to all year, but I've always had my fondest feelings for the coaching education courses that I've attended and the network of coaching peers that it opened up to me. I now have lifelong friendships that wouldn't exist without attending those courses. The value of being a member of the United Soccer Coaches family is immeasurable for me as a coach and as someone who loves the game. Once again, my name is Sean Danhauser, and I would appreciate your vote for the United Soccer Coaches Board of Directors. That was Sean Danhauser. Up next, Rusty Oglesby, the two gentlemen running for a spot on the 2020 United Soccer Coaches Board of Directors. Hello, everybody. It's Dean Linky, host of our United Soccer Coaches podcast, and I wanted to let you know that there's still time to register for the 2020 United Soccer Coaches Convention in Baltimore. Make your plans to join us January 15th through the 19th for five days of coaching education, networking, meal and social functions, award presentations, and so much more. Visit unitedsoccercoachesconvention.org to see the full schedule of events and get registered for the United Soccer Coaches convention your event for all things coaching and i hope to see each and every one of you in baltimore hi my name is rusty Oakley, and i'm running for the spot on the united soccer coaches board of directors just a little bit about myself uh, this is my 20th year in coaching um, i'm currently the head soccer coach at john paul ii high school private school in plano texas um, it's just been a wonderful opportunity for me to look around and see what i wanted to do in life and understand what the united soccer coaches offered um, I currently serve on the uh, Advocacy Council as the chair for the High School Ag- Advocacy Council for United Soccer Coaches, and I've been doing that since uh, 2015. Um, it's been an awesome time for me to get together with other people in the uh, organization to come together and, and really work to advocate for all the different levels and ideas of what membership has through United Soccer Coaches. Um, I'm also currently the general manager for the Denton Diablos out of the NPSL, uh, which was a new new group that we started last year, and we'll also be making our first appearance in the Lamar Hunt United Soccer, uh, uh, sorry, U- Lamar Hunt uh, Open Cup this year. So we're very excited about that opportunity and what everything has to uh, uh, bring in that in that regard. Rusty, what made you decide to run for the board position? 
I've always kind of been one of those guys that when I got into something, wanted to see what else could be offered, right? Um, when I started out in, in Texas, I, I joined on to the Texas Association of Soccer Coaches uh, Board of Directors and, and kind of worked my way through that process. And after three years, decided it was that I needed more for that, too, um, and wanted to make uh, lifetime changes and different things for for that organization and became the president of the Texas um, uh, the Texas Association. And so when the opportunity to come on um, in 2014-2015 with Lisa Cole starting the Advocacy Council under the direction of the Board of Directors, um, it, it was just an opportunity, I thought, for me to, number one, learn more, uh, better myself. I'm always a lifelong, lifelong learner when it comes to uh, pretty much anything I do. Um, but it, especially the game of soccer has given me so much in life. And so I, I, I saw an opportunity to join onto that. I had no idea at the time that, that would lead into further leadership roles. It was literally uh, my foot into a, a different world of United Soccer Coaches at that time, you know, the NSCAA. Um, and I, it was an organization I completely and highly respected uh, with all the friends that I had developed through the years through coaching uh, lectures and um, college coaches that had done recruiting through um, through our high school and just all different kinds of things. I thought it was a whole new facet of the game, so separate from United, uh, the USSF, right, and, and a different, you know, mentality. Coaching uh, clinics that I'd taken had been uh, put together so differently and so much more uh, favorably to a coach, especially a high school coach. Um, at that time, that I just felt like maybe this was a pathway that could give me some better understanding of of what I wanted out of the game. And then to fast forward through these last few years, and now to be sitting as the chair of the high school group uh, membership group through advocacy has just been so rewarding and so um, unbelievable to work to really try to make the high school game look uniform throughout the United States instead of this state having this rule or that rule and different things like that. We're, we're really trying to work so hard to do that and just so many other things. But uh, So for me, it was a situation of, okay, I've kind of worked my path through the Advocacy Council and um, working kind of really hand-in-hand a little bit with Sue Ryan to help really kind of give a better focus to some of our groups and see what we could kind of come up with to really make that group, the whole council, be what it was supposed to be, which was uh, a group that could come to the board and really help give a pulse of what was happening in the United States um, to them. And so then the next the next thought was, well, what's next, right? What what can I do next? And that that was either um, hopefully maybe one day take over for Sue in that role or um, go this path, which was uh, to hopefully be uh, in the next five years, you know, the, the president of the United Soccer Coaches. And so for me, it just kind of was a situation of what could I do the greatest good? And I feel like I've been doing that up to this point. Um, but now what can we do more? Um, and through that knowledge, what we've done through the Advocacy Council, I think that's going to bring a unique skill set to possibly uh, helping run the organization in a few years um, as we move forward. Rusty, what is the number one biggest strength you would bring to the board? I think it's unification. I, I, I've done this before, uh, albeit on a, a slightly smaller role, but you know, in the state of Texas, you, you, we, were, we were going through a unique growth spurt in Texas where it used to be only the top schools played, uh, the, the largest classification of schools played. Um, and then about uh, 10 years or so ago, we added a second classification in. I guess it was 10 to 15 years ago, we had a second classification in. But if you were still smaller, you could only play in the, the next qualification group up. So 
we eventually added that third. And so we just continued to grow and, and add layers to it. Um, and as we were doing those things, we had to unify what all of that looked like. Coaches that didn't feel like they were getting served properly. Uh, the top coaches who thought that they might have a lot more to offer, and so they they maybe looked down differently on different groups. And so we had to bring all those people to the table to make everything um, really be very successful for the state and add these new, new, new classifications. And with that came all kinds of new challenges. Um, and so as a president of that group, when, when I first started in, I know that first year we had, I was getting a, a check saying, hey, it's a little bit low on funds, let's hold off. And then uh, on depositing your check, and by the end it was we were running $100,000 budgets, right? And so it was how do we bring all of that together? How do we unify the old groups with the new groups, uh, old leadership versus new leadership styles and all of that? And so that, take that now and bring that into where we are with United Soccer Coaches. Um, you know, uh, it was a situation a while back where we had the faith group, faith-based group coming on, and they were trying to figure out how do how do they work their way into a situation to have a successful group. Um, we we saw how other groups were being formed, and it was how do we bring this group in and and help them understand that under the guise of United Soccer Coaches, not only can you be a faith-based group, but a faith-based group that that is involved with inclusion and in diversity and all the different things that we strive to have the United Soccer Coaches. And so when you're doing those things and you're having to bring different people to the table with different values and different skill sets and all those things, you have to be able to sit in a room and come up with something that's very unified and working. Um, and that means that when you're behind the doors of the, the, the room, that doesn't always mean that everybody's going to love each other 100% and pat each other on the back and sing kumbaya. But when the door opens, we have to be able to step out and present what we have as, as the actual banner of our organization. And I think that, I think if you ask the people in the council that I work with, I think if you speak to my, my friends and anyone that I try to come in contact with, I'm an open, giving, and, and hopefully a loving person that wants to have those people feel successful. And uh, I strive to have other people uh, grow around me. And, and I'm not too concerned if it turns out that I end up getting a little credit or you get credit or anybody else gets credit. The question is, are we doing the right thing for the most amount of people and moving forward in the right direction? And then it doesn't matter who gets the credit, right? It's all about what have we done that makes everything better today in this organization for future generations to come. Rusty, if you could do one thing, just one thing, immediately for the association, what would it be? I would give us a voice at the table in the actual world of soccer where we're not just proud of who we are, but we're sitting at the table with the federation and giving them the true pulse of what's going on in this world and in this country so that perhaps we could actually finally get to the level where we need to be as an organizational group throughout the United States Again, where we don't care who gets the credit, but get to the table and truly have a voice, not just a person sitting in the room as a uh, token, if that makes sense. Finally, Rusty, what part of membership in United Soccer Coaches do you relate to the most? I have to give you two on this, and it's, it's pretty simple for me. Obviously, high school, because I've been coaching it for so long. Um, that's easy. That, that, that's easy to say uh, hands down. Um, but, but beyond that, for me, I'm a grassroots guy. I am the, the guy who sees the first-time guy walking into the convention with those big bug eyes going, oh, my God, look at this unbelievable thing that I'm getting to be a part of. Uh, I'm a grassroots guy in the fact that <laughs> in San Angelo, Texas, back in 1984, I was picking up rocks next to the San Angelo Dam 
and we were building 20 soccer fields. And I remember as a kid walking along and picking up rocks and putting them in a bucket on a Sunday afternoon in West Texas as we were building a foundation for um, a brand-new sport that West Texas had never seen, right? We, we didn't even have any foreign people really that lived there that spoke a different language or anything like that. So we had to rely on um, just basic people that understood the game so far beyond the old wonderful little rednecks that we were in West Texas. So to me, I'm a grassroots guy. I want to get into the to the depths and the understanding of how can we reach the player that's not being reached. I'm tired of the pay-by-play system. I want to have life be what it's supposed to be, and that's the joy of the game. And so for me, I identify with everyone in our organization that doesn't have the title, that doesn't have the uh, total understanding of maybe the organization, but they know they have a love for the game, a passion for the game, and an understanding that this game is so much greater than any individual, and it is the ultimate unifier in the world if we just give it the opportunity to be. Once again, my name is Rusty Oglesby, and I would appreciate your vote for the United Soccer Coaches Board of Directors. Thank you. Looking for ways to improve your training sessions? Quick Goal has supplied the highest quality soccer goals, seating, field, and training equipment for over 30 years. From backyards to the world's greatest pitches, Quick Goal has products essential for every level of the game. As an official partner to the United Soccer Coaches and technical partner to U.S. Soccer, Quick Goal knows what equipment you need to take your game to the next level. Visit quickgoal.com to satisfy all your equipment needs. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap. Happy New Year to each and every one of you. Dean Linke, delighted to be with you, and it was a delight to meet the two candidates that are running for the open spot on the United Soccer Coaches Board of Directors. Certainly wish both of them the best of luck. We're now pleased to be joined by Mike Waitala. He has been with Soccer America Almost 35 years, executive editor. He has been around a long time, does a great job. And, Mike, we kind of wanted to do the year that was with you, if that's okay. Happy New Year to you, Mike. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, Happy New Year. I should say I was very young when I started this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You still look great, man. You still write great as well, which is the most important thing. Your work at Soccer America, I look forward to it every day, Mike. I'm not saying that to be sycophantic. I really enjoy it, sir. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, my pleasure. All right. Well, when I think of the last year, there's quite a few stories. Of course, the Women's World Cup and then everything that kind of goes with it, the pay issue that's going on with U.S. soccer. But let's start with uh, the women's team and the Women's World Cup, back-to-back World Cup titles for the USA. Yeah, I thought it was tremendous. Um, I mean, obviously, we've gotten used to the U.S. women doing well, but uh, if we thought, you know, anybody who's followed the, the Women's World Cups uh, since they started, we, we've seen the, the quality of the play um, keep rising, keep increasing. Um, I think it's no, you know, no great revelation that the, the, the women on this team are, are quite remarkable, not just on uh, how they play, but also how articulate they are off the field. Um, I, I find it very, you know, very interesting. Just, I mean, I see it, uh, you know, with with uh, kids around where I live. Is it's remarkable the kind of positive influence they have on on girls who play soccer and girls in general. It was a neat thing. Now, one of the things that happened this year, Sports Illustrated named Megan Rapino the Sports Person of the Year, and for the most part, it got rave reviews, but. She also drew some not-so-rave reviews. Megan Rapino on Sportswoman 
of the year. What's your take on that, Mike? Yeah, I'd say she's a shoo-in because, um, you know, she scored those key goals. And then, um, you know, she was very interesting as far as her off-field stuff and the things she talked about. Now, you might be able people might disagree with her, but if you watch her, anybody who watched her address certain issues um, would see that she handled them amazingly well. You know, she didn't go on angry rants. She found the humor wherever she could. You know, her acceptance speech of the FIFA award is only about um, probably a minute or so. It's very short, maybe it's two minutes, and it's worth watching because she touches on so many important issues in a humble way. Uh, she's a, I think she's remarkable, and I think there's no, you know, on, on field, certainly she deserves it. Those goals were key. Um, yeah, I, I don't think there's much of a controversy. We move into 2020. The issue of equal pay will continue to roll on. She got that started, and you're right. Her answers were great, and she didn't go on long rants. But where does that end? How does that play out, in your opinion, Mike? What do you see happening? A lot of the um, major issues had been addressed uh, belatedly, but they had been addressed in the, la- in the last collective bargaining agreement. Um, and I do believe that they're not that far away. The big, big question is back pay. Um, the other question, of course, is the FIFA bonuses, but that comes from FIFA. So that's a little tricky one is how to, uh, you know, how does, how much more money does the Federation throw in that they're not getting from FIFA for World Cup bonuses? Now they can handle that. That, that, that shouldn't be a bank breaker to add more money to what FIFA gives the women for the winning the World Cup. The back pay one's a tricky one. I don't know what the answer to that. I believe what's happening right now is they're trying to negotiate on that and, uh, try and find a settlement sooner or later. It's a, you know, it's been a distraction. I mean, it's been a positive in the sense of the, um, you know, the light it's shown on, on, on certain equality issues, but it's also, you know, it's also something that I think needs to be addressed and, and the Federation needs to move on. It's got all these lawsuits. The Federation's no secret. It's not in the best of shape right now. Um, I don't think it's because of that suit. I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of other issues that are, that they're not doing very well at. Well, and we'll get into that. Let's stick with the women. Two more things on the women. One, uh, Jill Ellis decided to step aside. So in comes a new coach. What will that mean for the future of the program? Well, that, that, that's also very intriguing. I mean, Jill Ellis, um, I is, you know, I think is a terrific coach. I think she's a, obviously she's successful. She won two World Cups. I mean, that's amazing, right? Um, and she's a role model coach. The way she behaves, um, on the sidelines, I think she's a, any coach at any level should watch the way she coaches. Um, she's been able to navigate. Now, obviously, she has the benefit of having coached fantastic players, but it's not easy to navigate the kind of talent they have and the kind of personalities. Who, uh, it's not easy to be a, a national team coach in, in any manner, but she did a wonderful, wonderful job. Um, you know, the big the big challenge now with the Olympics and Vosco coming in is that um, you know, they've they got to keep got to cut about you know, a number of players who played in the World Cup because the roster is only 18 for the Olympics and only 23 for the World Cup. Um, that's going to be tricky. That's, you know, something that I'm sure Jill isn't uh, going to miss having to do. Um, and maybe it's good to have a new guy do that. Um, it'll be tough because I'm sure, you know, one of the reasons he got his job is because he was so popular among the women, the veteran women, who I'm sure had a say in who was going to be the coach. So um, we'll see how that goes. And um, the kind of neat thing is that I know it's weird that the Olympics come a year after the World Cup um, for the women. But on the other hand, it's kind of, it, it's, it's fun too, because, um, you know, we, we had, we had a fun World Cup a year ago and now we get to see how they do go on the next stage. And the big question is, you know, what new faces are we going to see?
Coming off the World Cup, the attendances, understandably, for the NWSL were great. I actually think they were better than even maybe I thought, or maybe even you thought, Mike. I mean, the fact that now you've got Washington being able to play some games at Aldi, you've got Sky Blue FC, I think, playing all of their games at Red Bulls. That's pretty exciting, and even the North Carolina Courage, which dominated again, their crowds down the stretch were phenomenal. Chicago had 20,000-plus. Can they keep that going? Well, okay, yeah, I mean, the Portland Thorns, I think, are the one that really, really did. I believe they're the first women's team ever to average 20,000 fans a game. Um, whether it's women or men, a professional league, especially with soccer, which is a relatively new sport, is a giant challenge. Um, and part of that is just the size of the country. So if you look at the total average attendance in 2019, um, you know, after the World Cup boost, we're talking about 7,300, right? That's not enough income to, to balance the books when you're talking about all the travel. And, um, the NWSL, I think it should be mentioned that, you know, was basically started and run by the U.S. Soccer Federation. I, I say it should be mentioned because the, Federation gets a lot of grief uh, because of the equal uh, pay lawsuit, but they've done, you know, they created this league, and not just for the 30, uh, 25, 23 players in the World Cup, but for, you know, the hundreds of players and players come after that that we don't hear enough about. Um, so, but now you've got a sort of a new chapter. You've got the optimism of the women's game continuing to grow, getting more attention, but right now the NWSL doesn't have a commissioner, doesn't have a TV deal, doesn't have a lot of sponsors, and we don't know where expansion is going. So, you know, I, we want to be optimistic, but it's still a challenge. And, you know, we remember back when MLS, you know, MLS almost folded after three years. It's just not um, an easy um, business model. You know, end up the, the MLS was able to really gain traction because of owners building their own stadiums, which changes the revenue situation dramatically, right? Um, MLS is still behind the other leagues in the world um, because the television income is not nearly what, say, the English Premier League, Bundesliga, Mexican League, et cetera, et cetera. So NWSL needs money coming in from other sources besides attendance, um, and we'll see how that goes. Uh, you know, I think it's in better shape than ever because of the, you know, positive feelings about the women's sports and that it's improved. You know, that it's, it's more fun to watch. It's uh, become more entertaining. So uh, it'll be, it'll still be a challenge, and we'll see how it goes. All right, great job breaking down the women's game. Now, before we get to the men's team and what Coach Burhalder is going to do, because there's still a lot of work to do. You said it best. There are a lot of issues going on at U.S. soccer right now. One is the one we already talked about, equal pay, but they're looking for a new leader. They have been a bit of, uh, let's say, for lack of a better word, frantic as far as their public relations scope. Break down the year that was for U.S. soccer, particularly at headquarters, coaches leaving, youth coaches leaving, the notion they've got to be in Chicago, all that stuff, Mike. Break that down. Yeah, I mean, it's sad because I thought that very many things – despite the men's full national team not qualifying for the World Cup, were going in a very positive direction. And by, by that I mean, you know, Tab Rivals says U20 is always getting to the quarterfinals, beating a team like France at the last World Cup, doing quite well. Um, you know, the U17s two years ago, and the U20s got to the quarterfinals of both World Cups, which is unique for any country. Uh, you've got generations of young players. We don't know how they'll pan out. I mean, completely, but probably more young 
boy, uh, young men who have great potential than we've ever seen before. So I don't know, and I've asked, but have not got the answer, why the U.S. Soccer Federation decided to completely revamp the youth national team program, because I don't know what they saw that was so awful that they got rid of Todd Ramos, who had been extremely successful, um, every single coach they had, who in general I thought were good coaches. Uh, right now they have not one single <laughs> – uh, I'm not sure we laugh. This is sad. They don't have a, a single full-time coach in the youth, uh, youth national teams on the boys' side, and only one on the women's side. They, they've lost 300 to 13 full-time coaches. If you're going to clean house because you have a new uh, regime and you think you're going to do everything better than the other people did, or you just have that feeling, oh, I don't want to keep anybody around who was with the other people. Okay, I get that. But then you've got to do something on your own. You just can't let it sit there and nothing happen. Um, so I just hope that I mean I don't know it's 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 sad. All right, Mike. Now with the men's team with Coach Burhalter, after we saw some of those results, you know, during the Gold Cup and after the Gold Cup, and now in this Nations Cup, that type of thing, particularly the loss against Canada, I think people were. I mean, they weren't necessarily calling for him to be let go. They weren't. They didn't go to that extreme, but they weren't pleased with what was going on. As we move into 2020 right now, what is your take on how he's doing and how he makes sure that we do, in fact, get into the World Cup? Because that's got to happen, right, Mike? Greg Berhalter is a smart guy. He's a smart coach. He's a, you know, I, I, but I do think that he's making a mistake. I think he's coaching this team like a club team. You know, that, that this is some, he's got this way of, he thinks you're supposed to play this, uh, you know, he's heavily influenced by Dutch soccer, which now has taken over the Federation in many different ways, um, which I have a problem with because I don't think the Netherlands is, 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 is a country that we can compare ourselves to. We can maybe, you know, appreciate certain things they do, but I don't think we should try and replicate them. I think that um, we all want our national team to play in a attractive manner, in an aggressive manner, um, and but I do think that the national team coach's job at the senior level is to take a look at his player pool, find the best players, the best talents he has, and figure out how to get the, the best out of them. I believe what Greg has done is he has an idea of how they should play, and then he's fitting them into that system, and um, and I'm not sure if that's the way to go. You know, you've had games where, you know, Weston McKinney, who's a who's been praised in Germany for one thing, which is his aggressive defensive play. Um, now he's playing. You know, he's roaming up in the at the, at the front line, and, and Michael Bradley's by himself in front of the the back line. You've got these you know intricate things that the outside back is going to do, and you look and you go, well, where's this guy? Now he's somewhere else, and sometimes I wonder if if when the when the players, when the U.S. national team players get the ball, they're thinking in the back of their minds, you know, what, what, what does Greg want me to do right now? Um, the, the, I think Greg is a smart enough guy that he's going to adjust. I, I think he already has, and he's going to do what I think he should do is get the best out of what I think is a reasonable amount of talent, um, and um, you know, and, and go from there. I think we need to have we need to have I think he needs to have the players. Um, it needs to be simplified and have them be less rigid. Um, and then, you know, I mean, it shouldn't be a problem getting to the World Cup, but, um, you know, um, I do think we have upcoming talent. I don't know how it's all going to pan out. Like a lot of the U20 kids that have had, even some of the U17 kids, you know, um, there's a lot of potential there. I'm very much hoping that um, 
you know, that, that, that they succeed at the higher levels. I and mean, that is one thing that you could give great credit for is that, you know, he's used a pretty relatively young team uh, a lot of the time. So that's a good thing. Um, you know, I'd just like to see it be, uh, um, you know, not so, not so rigid and just not, not be so nervous about how the team's playing all the time. A normal transition here would be to, to go to MLS, but I want to save MLS for last. Since we have you on, I do want to get your latest take on high school and pay-for-play and academy and, and that type of thing. You've been uh, very good about even writing about the importance of high school soccer, and you've seen Christian Labor step up even more with his push with ECNL and why that, that might even be better than academy. What's your latest take on that whole, uh, I guess, can of soup? I think there, we, the Federation should seriously consider getting out of youth soccer and focusing on scouting and the youth national team programs and ramping that up. I think the development academy on the boys' side did something very, very important when it started in 2007. It changed the Wild West a little bit of youth soccer. It um, created high level of, uh, of club play where, where thanks to the fact that professional clubs were involved, uh, you have a lot of talented kids who are now playing, you know, cost-free or economically more than ever in the, in the boys' academy. Um, they aired made in, a, in a big way by with the high school band. They should have left that up to the clubs and the players. Um, they became too rigid in all their rules and their licensing. And to have to say that you need a B license to coach a U13 game is ridiculous, um, which makes it more expensive for the clubs because now it's uh, if you have a B license, you're a coach who can put them out you know, he can basically sell himself because they're rare and you, your clubs will have to pay you a lot. On the women's side, they erred in a major way because they went head-to-head with the ECNL. Uh, they made it easy for the ECNL to fight the, the turf war because they did the high school ban, which was even stupider on the girls' side because I think high school in general might be even more important um, for girls' soccer. So it, 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 they made a lot of – they did a lot of things where it was the right direction, a lot of good – good ideas behind it, but made mistakes that created what we now have is, a, is an acrimony in this new soccer landscape that I have not seen in 34 years. Um, you know, the ECNL and the U.S. soccer war, which is ridiculous, you know, why would you have that happen? So I think they need to really consider trusting the clubs and the directors and the coaches that we have around the country because I, if you look around – at what we have now, it's pretty good. It's pretty sophisticated. It's a lot better than it was in 2007. Um, you know, maybe you regionalize things more to cut down on travel. Um, stop sitting in Chicago and telling people you all have to do things the same way. I just don't think that's a smart idea. Um, it's created problems. It's putting all your eggs in one basket. Um, you know, trust trust the coaches that we have. Trust the clubs. Um, not everybody's going to do things perfectly. We're a giant country. Not everybody has to do things perfectly. Uh, we just have to have some rise to the top, and we've, and we'll we'll get there. Uh, so they need to reevaluate um, how they treat people at the youth levels uh, when it comes to the rules they make for the academy, uh, and they need to listen. They need to get feedback from some of these directors that have been around from the get go. So that needs to change, and I don't know if it will because I don't see the – and I don't hear – if I ask someone, and I've asked a number of people, who runs the Boys Development Academy at U.S. Soccer? They don't know. They don't know. Who do you call if you have an issue? They don't know. I mean, how did we come to that? 
good stuff here as uh, we're taking a look back at the year that was 2019 in soccer in our country with Mike Waitala, 34 years. He's the executive editor with Soccer America. And I told you I was going to go to MLS. Before I do, I do want to go to USL because this will be my 14th year calling then Carolina Railhawks, now North Carolina FC. I get to work now with Dave Sterkin. Yeah. I see John Hart's down in USL second level. I see Eric Ronaldo coaching. I see Mike Jeffries. I see all these great coaches. And I see the growth of USL, and I say, this is good for our sport in this country because we're going to get to MLS, the fact that they have 30 teams. They just announced Charlotte. But the USL on its own right, Mike, with some pretty good crowds in some markets, has also grown. And yeah. I they had a pretty good year. Absolutely. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up because I, 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 you know, we want to talk about good stuff, and there's a lot of good stuff out there. Um, I do highly recommend um, an article that my, that Paul Kennedy at Soccer America wrote today on the top 10 U.S. soccer stories of the 2010s, and that includes the, uh, the success that USL has had. Um, you know, Paul goes through the, you know, the importance of having soccer-specific stadium. Stadiums. Now, that's not just MLS. You've got the uh, USL. You've got Pittsburgh, San Antonio, Tampa, Rio Grande, Phoenix, et cetera, et cetera. Um, New Mexico, I think, is a very promising team that does not have its own stadium, but is doing very well. You know, new team franchise. Um, it's really neat. It, it'll, it's uh, what do we have? Thirty-five teams getting ready to play. Another twelve in the USL League One. Um, in a lot of these places, the atmosphere is really good. You know, we have so much talent that. Um, we're such a huge country, and soccer has been big for so long now. Um, it, it, it's not that you know; it's very possible to put a, a very talented team together anywhere. I mean, I, you know, one thing I like to do every week is uh, is I post a video of the best goals of every league: uh, MLS, Bundesliga, Premier League, USL. And um, you know, besides the USL games, I have a chance to watch on streaming. You know, it's a it's a terrific level. You know, it's uh, there's a lot of great soccer there. So you're right; it's an important thing. It's a and we're such a huge country that you can't have an MLS team within driving distance everywhere. So it's fantastic to have um, you know access to the to the USL team. Mike, we were together back in '94, and then right after that is when I was the director of communications for Major League Soccer, and we waited to get our tenth team, and then we decided, particularly in Colorado, that we needed the YMCA and the Monkeys and Les Tigres uh, Mexican band to get crowds at the old Mile High Stadium. Mm. It's not like that anymore. They now have 30 teams. Charlotte is basically committing through their big dollared owner that they're going to do Atlanta the way Atlanta does Atlanta, which is a big statement, but I kind of believe them. I mean, what do you think about 30 teams now in uh, the addition of Charlotte? I think that... So, uh, there's a lot of reasons I think why MLS is, is doing so well right now, um, and, and one of it is the popularity of soccer among your 20, 30 old, 30 year olds. Um, and I think there's a couple sources for that. It might even have something to do with FIFA video games, or whatever. But I think a lot of it has to do with the the global intrigue that this that, that the sport uh, offers. And you know, it's just an interesting sport. It's fantastic. It's, it's really cool when you go to a game and you see, wow, that guy's from down the street. And that guy's from Uruguay, you know, and that guy's from, you know, Germany. Um, and the quality has gotten higher. The stadiums have gotten better. You know, I, I think it's easy to see that it's very important to have the stadiums in a place where it's fun to go out to that game. 
um, that to me would be kind of the next step. I think the, the, the MLS kind of makes some of the teams made mistakes by building stadiums out too far away from the center of city, you know, because you, you want to have the kind of Seattle atmosphere, Portland atmosphere that is super. Um, but I would say that it's it's generally fun soccer to watch. I mean, LAFC, you know you're going to watch a good game if you turn that on. And you've got you've got a lot like that. So it's 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 I mean, yeah, like you said, we talk, we think about the olden days. You know, in the olden days, they tried to say, "Oh, let's get the youth soccer people out." That's not going to work because people are too busy taking their kids to practice and the games, you know, three or four times a week, and they might go to a few. You need you need fans, sports fans. You need the you know men and women who think that going to a soccer game on Saturday is a really fun thing to do. And they've started to succeed in that in a lot of ways and brought some good talent in. A lot of the South American playmakers that we brought in, you know, and even guys like Ibra, right? I mean, that was, that was, you know, that was fun. Um, and I'm hoping that more young Americans get playing time. So it's a, it's a, I'm glad you brought that up because I wish that US, that US soccer would pay more attention to MLS. You know, I think they, I think they should look at their assistant coaches. They should look what they're doing. You have a league that's becoming, that's playing a very, a lot of the teams are playing a very Latin style of play. It's successful. People enjoy watching it. And it's, it's, it's good. But I liked your comment on you turn an LF, LAFC game on and you're going to be excited. And one of the things that I've noticed more now than ever, I noticed a little bit last year, but with so much Premier League action on the television and so much soccer in general, I also think that has helped tremendously because people that I would never expect who would never go to, for instance, I'm like, hey, are you going to go to the Curry's game or the North Carolina Sea game? They're like, no, but I am going to wake up at 8 o'clock and watch Arsenal. Like, that is a real phenomenon that is happening in our country that is not slowing down. Yeah, no, it's a, I guess it's a little bit of a double-edged sword because MLS has to compete not just with um, – you know, other sport. It has to compete with soccer, right? It's it's been a big challenge because you can you can watch every single game in the important game in the world from your living room, right? Um, and MLS had to, has had to battle against uh, you know what we would call the Euro snobs or what we would call people who you know are attached to teams from another country. Um, and they've made great progress. I think on the plus side, the more soccer is popular, no matter where it's from, that's great. And um, you know. MLS has to be able to compete with that, present a game that's a, a entertaining and a high quality and a stadium atmosphere that's fun. And I mean, the goal scoring average is fantastic. You know, they got they're averaging more than three goals a game, which is which is super. Um, and uh, you know, it, it, it I think it's important because it's it's got to be soccer's got to be got to have goals in soccer. You know, and, and the trend generally has been for goal scoring to go down. Um, so there's a there's a lot of positive stuff and. Um, yeah, the, the, it, it is phenomenal how much soccer we can watch on television. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's crazy. Well, you know, you think about it, 30 years at Soccer America, I don't know if you've gone to everyone, but I'm guessing you've gone to 75 80%. But uh, another convention is coming up in Baltimore. I expect to see you there and Paul and maybe your other Paul. It is really the true unifier. We've got a former big-time Soccer America executive as our CEO. What makes the convention such a special place to be, Mike? It's, it brings the soccer community together. And uh, it's always been a wonderful thing because you you run into people that maybe you only talk to on the phone or maybe you only read about. Um, there's obviously you've got the you know, clinics and events and all that kind of stuff. But the uh, really neat thing, and I think maybe it might be more important now than ever, 
um, is it brings us all into the same room, and 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 we just got to remind ourselves what we're all we're supposed to be. We we were we soccer had this wonderful thing. I think it still does, where we kind of feel like we feel like a community. We we feel like a soccer family, and maybe we compete in certain ways, um, but we've always all tried to work towards you know making this sport better and more popular and. Um, and what the convention does, it, it reminds us of that. It reminds us that, hey, we love this sport. That's why we're in it. Um, you know, let's be, let's, let's start trying to not have silly things make things bad. And let's, uh, and, and the United Soccer coaches gets a lot of credit for that. And, and they're kind of filling a role that I think maybe the Federation isn't. And that is to be, to listen, to be inclusive, um, you know, to have respect for people at every single level of the game. Great respect for you, Mike Waitala, 34-plus years at Soccer America, and you did a great job on our year-end review as uh, we wrap up another decade. Mike, can you believe we're doing that? One more decade gone. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I look forward to seeing you at the convention and everybody else that's coming. All right, well said, Mike. Thanks for being on the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Keith Steph. Team Snap's awesome. I have five teams on Team Snap. There are no questions asked by the players, the parents. Very easy to use. Very, very, very easy. Simple to use. Everyone, you know, everything's right there. Messages, availability, boom, boom, boom. I've looked at other at other things, and I think Team Snap sets the bar for this type of team management software. It's the best that I found. Welcome back to United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap as we once again wish you a happy new year. Hope everybody had a safe and happy holiday season. As we told you, we're wrapping up our show. You know, they say when you have kids, you're not supposed to pick a favorite, but I've been pretty open that uh, my favorite during my time at U.S. Soccer was the great number one, the captain. He had the mullet. He had everything going on. He still does. Tony Miola. Tony, it's always great to be with you. Happy new year, my friend. Same to you, pal. Appreciate uh, you having me on. Yeah, indeed. We just uh, kind of wrapped up the year that was with Mike Waitola, who says his best, sends his best to you as well. He's a big fan of yours. Great as, guy. As, Great yeah, guy. fantastic guy. So here we go, Tony. Get us caught up on everything you're doing. We know you've got counterattack every night on Sirius from 4 to 7, but what else are you doing right now? Yeah, so uh, made, uh, as most of our counterattack listeners, no, uh, made the move down to uh, Florida uh, to be a little bit closer to uh, the kids down here. We've been wanting to move down for a while. Uh, since doing that, I've been uh, I've been working for Concacaf, um, calling uh, all of their Scotiabank uh, league games. There, I'll be doing their Concacaf Champions League games. I'll be doing Women's World Cup. So I do the world feeds um, and, and pretty much uh, working like a madman at the moment. Calling about twelve to fifteen games a month and. U.S. Open Cup coming up, so a lot of stuff going on. So, so still, still, obviously uh, in the same industry, and uh, looking forward to another MLS season, and looking forward to what's going on here uh, stateside with our U.S. Men's National Team as well. Well, and I think I told you as I had you on before, and you still were expressing some interest in coaching. I told you then, and you know, I'm a kind of a so-called broadcaster. I'm no Tony Viola, but I love broadcasting. I told you then, I think you're the best. In the business, do you feel like you settled oh, in on that, or do you, yeah, do you still have the coaching bug at all, Tony? Or are you good with yeah, the broadcast? I do, and, and you know, for the last five and a half years or so, uh, my coaching bug, outside of the, the time in Jacksonville where I was doing it full time, 
was kind of fulfilled by going in with the youth national teams uh, while Fab was uh, the technical director and under-20 coach there. I was in with a bunch of the national teams. Uh, Omid Namazi, you know, was pretty much his, his full-time assistant with the U18 for the last, oh, I don't know, two or two and a half years um, that he was at U.S. Soccer. Now that that's changed, I still think about uh, you know, being back on the field and you know, all of that stuff, but um, I appreciate the kind words. I, I I love the fact that I'm in the game. I, and Dean, quite honestly, I feel like when I'm calling games, I remember my first interview at Fox when they said I had really only done like three games in my life, uh, and two were by accident, just filling in for someone. And they said, well, what do you think of yourself as an analyst? What do you, what do you look for? Like, what do you... I said, I don't know. I just think about if I were the coach of that team, what would I be doing? You know, and they said, oh, that's a pretty good way to go about it. Um, and, and that's, I, I look at it sort of in, in that vein. Um, so I still feel like every day the the analyzing of EPL games and Champions League games that we have on the channel and, and getting on air and listening to opinions and debating, you know, who should play here and who should have been subbed in and all of those things are still part of the coaching learning process and just not on the field right now but I mean who knows you never really know when, when that's going to change but hopefully one day uh, that, that'll that be part of, of what I'm doing but for now I really really enjoy it um, keeps me about as close to the game as you can keeps me really really busy um, and that's always a good thing in this sport well, and, you know, I like the notion of doing, you know, 15 to 17 games a, a month. I, I'm doing the same thing, sometimes even 20. i got to tell you, the tough that the, the part that seems tough to me, Tony, is doing a daily show, talking about soccer for three hours a day. And I know you have fill-ins here and there because your schedule is so busy, but how hard is that? Or do you feel like because there's so much success now in this country and worldwide with soccer that it's not that hard? You just love it. You just hang out and talk soccer. Well, yeah, I feel like I would be, you know, talking soccer anyway with my buddies, uh, but obviously preparing a three-hour show probably takes about five hours. Those days where I do a show from four to seven, and then I call a game from eight to ten, and then ten to midnight, those are the tough nights, and I do those about five five or six nights a month, um, and those are really, really hard because I'm getting home at one o'clock, turning around and doing doing it, uh, you basically do it three days in a row, um, that's, that's, uh, that's um, you know, a difficult one. But, yeah, the, the preparation is tough. Uh, the thing I do like is that I have a pretty good grasp of, let's call it the, the, the sort of the, the second-tier player in CONCACAF because I've seen them so much and I've had MLS coaches who have watched the games and called and have said, hey, are you – have you done other games from this player? And I'd look at my notes and say, yeah, you know what, I've done six games from this player, and this is kind of what I came up with. Um, you know, is he a guy we should look at? And, I, you know, my, my opinion may or may not be what they go on, but I give, I, at least I have the opportunity to give my opinion on, on um, you know, hey, that's a player maybe you should keep an eye on for the next couple of years, or maybe that's a guy uh, based on his age or where he's at playing-wise. Um so I, I've been uh, I've been able to do that a little bit. But it's it's you know it's fun. You're in the game. This is the game we love. Uh, there's still a lot of things to fix in the U.S. and and hopefully those will uh, you know get fixed in the uh, in the, the near future here. But uh, you you've got to be in it to to make some kind of change for sure. 
Yeah, there certainly are some things to fix. There's also a lot to celebrate. And with the addition of Charlotte, there's now 30 teams in MLS. Can you imagine that, Tony? We struggled with 10. Remember, we lost teams with 10 back when we first got this thing launched in 1996. Now with 30 teams, I mean, I'm thinking, Tony, if you'd have known back then or maybe 10 years ago that they'd be at 30 this year, you might still be playing, my man. Yeah, <laughs> you know it's funny because I, I don't know that I'd be playing, but I, I think about this all the time, and we talk about it all the time. When when they were at fourteen teams is when we basically started counterattack. Um, the fourteen, sixteen teams. And I used to say to John Harks all the time. People would say, "Well, what's the magic? What's the magic number? Is it eighteen? Is it 20 I'm like, no, that's not the magic number. They're going, they're going uh, for years as long as these. Uh, uh, these franchise fees keep going up. It's what's driving the league right now, which is not a great thing all the time uh, to, to have that be your number one uh, source of, of revenue, but it is at the moment. And I still think, even though Don Garber said, you know, this could be the last one, um, you know, there, there could be uh, down the road 250 million reasons why it's not the last one. And then down the road there could be 300 million reasons. Last one. I'm I'm not convinced that this is the last one by any stretch. Uh, but we talk about 30 teams. No, I could never have imagined we'd get there this quickly. Um, I think uh, yeah, everyone says, "Well, does the talent get watered down?" Even as you know, the rules have changed so many times, and it's to keep uh, it's to keep bringing talented players in, and uh, you can manipulate the rules to to suit all of that stuff. I do hope that it gives American players uh, some more opportunities. I think, obviously, it will based on the number, but in the end, the American players have to earn it. Uh, nothing's going to be given to them, but this, this does give young American players some more chances, at least, to, to have teams to play for. Well, right now in this country, there's plenty of opportunities for American players and American coaches, not just because of MLS, but because of USL. You spent some time there. A lot of your former teammates are now in the USL coaching. Even USL deserves a lot of credit for its tremendous growth, Tony. Yeah, um, there, there's no doubt. And I, I look at the USL personally, and I think it's a it's a breeding ground for young American coaches. I, I recently had um, what's what's been sort of, uh, you know, I'm not a big Twitter guy, but I put out one tweet the other day that's gotten a few likes and uh, a few discussions around it, and that's what's happening at U.S. Soccer. And, um, I, I personally think that the youth national team coaching positions should go to American to to as much as they can, can should go to American coaches. Uh, and the reason for that is that we, you know, we're, we're now making American coaches go to all these coaching schools and pay thousands of dollars and you graduate the school that U.S. soccer tells you that you should graduate from or you have graduated from. And now it's time to, to, to put all of that, that paperwork into practice and there's only one way to do it and that's to get jobs and that's to give jobs out. Um, so I'm, I'm a big proponent, um, of, of U.S. coaches getting opportunities because just as much as we talk about developing players, we have to talk about developing coaches, and, and that's, for me, the best way to do it. Two more questions for the great Tony Miola, one of the all-time iconic members for U.S. soccer and continues to be iconic in his role as a big-time broadcaster and everything else he does. Tony, you won't be in Baltimore because you'll be doing stuff uh, covering the MLS out in California. Remind us what you're going to be doing during the convention in January. You'll be with MLS. What's going on there? 
Yeah, so over the last, uh, I guess, seven years, uh, SiriusXM has been out at the coaching convention because there was the MLS draft, and we did everything around that draft, and uh, they've moved that this year. Um, and in the same time period as the the convention this year, MLS does their media day. So essentially all that stuff you see throughout the year, all the commercials and all the sponsors go out to L.A. and all the broadcast broadcast partners do all their interviews and their, you know, what we call in the industry, the glamour shots that you'll see before games, all of that stuff. So SiriusXM will be out in L.A., uh, as one of the broadcast partners, um, you know, taking care of all of that, uh, as all the sponsors will. So it'll be an interesting, uh, couple days. I think they do a day and a half of one conference, and then they do a day and a half of the other conference, and then those guys are off the preseason, and, uh, we get to sit back and, uh, see how this thing, uh, turns out. Finally, Tony, you were there in goal in Trinidad when we qualified for the World Cup for the first time in 40 years. You, Started every game in '94. You made an amazing comeback to get back on a team eight years later. You also had a pretty good bird's eye front row seat when we didn't qualify. You now see this new coach and Mr. Burhalter. Please tell me that we are going to qualify because my fear is there's a lot of people that are still not totally sure. Tone. Um, I can understand uh, why they're not sure. I can understand the trepidation and, and sort of walking on eggshells about where we're at. I say this about coaches all the time, and I say it every day, and I'm sure our listeners sometimes, uh, when it's your team and you want a guy fired, you, you know, you hate hearing it. The, the, um, I look at it and I always judge managers at the end of their time. Um, because it's hard to judge what they're going to do and where they're going to go. I know there's been frustrations. I've been as frustrated. I'm a fan of the, the U.S. team and seeing growth in, in this group. But I believe in this group of players because for the last five and a half years, I've been pretty much involved with all of these players at the youth level. Um, and I look at them and say, there's enough here. There's enough to become a better team. There's the Paxton Pomichols of the world that we should hang our hats on, the Brendan Aronsons, uh, the, the Mark McKenzies who are developing, and the, the list goes on and on. Um, so I'm, I kind of hang my head on the, the, the future of this particular group and how bullish I've been on some of these young players. Seeing Christian Kappas in that group now and, uh, Jesus Ferrer who just got his, his, uh, his citizenship, uh, Yuli Lanez who's been a great young player doing well at the under 19s in, in his club in Germany and now gets an opportunity. There's players out there. We've got to let those players, um, uh, get some time and, and get some work. Um, and I'll end by this. I think it's a tough group to screw up in the end. I also think that, uh, Dean, that this particular group is set up for the 2026 World Cup. I think we'll qualify for 2022, but I think we'll see the best of this particular group in 2026. Well, that's a great point, a great way to end. And I can't think of a better way to end my 2019 than spending time with Tony Miola, even uh, my wife had a big smile knowing that I was talking to you because she also uh, liked you as much as I did, Tony. You are, you are the give her a kiss. Give the kids a, yeah, give everybody a kiss over there. Hope 2020 uh, is great for you. Love being on. Uh, anytime I can help, I always will. And uh, we'll catch up with you soon, buddy. Thanks so much. For Tony and all of our great guests, I'm Dean Linky, wishing each and every one of you a happy new year. 